0: <clears throat> well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 today, and so you can turn there. While you're turning there, I would just encourage everybody that I, as, as I can um, to, like, come to Sunday school. <laughs> um, if you're not coming to Sunday school, why? Why? The, thing, the stuff that we are going through, I mean, the stuff that we go through, it's always good. The stuff that we're going through right now concerning biblical anthropology and man, it is, it is so important, and it's marrying so well with the sermon series that we're doing. One, we're going to be breaking into Romans chapter 2. We should all have some idea of uh, mankind and what is wrong with man and uh, the sinful hearts and desires and all that stuff. And what we've been learning about in Sunday school regarding biblical anthropology and who man is. I mean, today, talking about being created in the image of God, endowed with this knowledge, this holiness, this righteousness that he's given to us. That was what was lost in the fall when it said that man had his eyes open and we died to, in our sin. We died in that way. Um, but in coming to Christ, we have that restored to us. And so as believers now, we live in the image of um knowing what God would want us to know and having his word. We have his righteousness given to us. We have this holiness given to us, imparted to us by Christ as well. And so then the believer then seeks to live those things out um, in the way that God created us to live them out. So it's just, it's wonderful stuff. It's going to marry, it's married very well with what we've learned about in Romans chapter one already. And it's going to continue to marry very well with what we're going to be getting into in Romans chapter two as well. So I encourage everybody, if you cannot attend in person, please at least watch online. If you haven't been able to watch online, um, they're available to go back and watch. So please do that. I would encourage you to do that. Um, Before we get into chapter 2 today, I want to try and set the stage for us, because there are a few things that we are going to encounter in chapter 2 in Romans that if they're very easily misunderstood Two things in particular that Paul could seem like he's encouraging, a works-based righteousness or a moral law-based righteousness. And these things are we'll get into more so in the latter part of chapter 2, but Paul has been building his argument as he's been talking about in chapter 1, laying the foundation for the effects of the fall upon mankind, who we are now, depraved in our nature, um, and he's going to kind of weave some of those thoughts into some of the things that come up later in chapter 2 as well. But um, we'll see that as, as the sermon series unfolds, Lord willing. But there are a couple things, one in particular, that I want to draw our eyes to. And, and hopefully, this is a, I pray that this is a kind of a, a, a helpful framework to view what it is that we've been talking about and to view especially what we're going to be talking about in chapter 2 in Romans. And the framework would be this, is that um, God, in in the beginning in Genesis, one of the things that we see is that there are two covenants that exist that run parallel through all time that are existing for all mankind. And the first that we see is was, was what we would call or what I would call the covenant of works. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God commanded Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but if they did, they would die. And essentially, they, they had a work set before them to perform an act of righteousness, and if they did, then they would achieve um, a, another state of perfection and glory, where they were incapable of falling into sin. But, um, of course, we know that they they fell into sin. They broke this covenant of works. And because of that, mankind is now a covenant um, lawbreaker. But this covenant of works continues on. God still demands perfect obedience and righteousness. It's not as if because Adam and Eve broke that covenant of works, God puts it aside. It still continues on. The call for mankind is absolute, complete perfection, Or as my brother would say, God said, Adam, you better keep that law perfectly, personally, and perpetually, boy. But we can't do that. And so the other covenant that we see introduced in Genesis 3.15 would be the covenant of grace. And that mankind is not saved by his works which is impossible. Paul will make that very clear in Romans chapter 3. We want to hold on to those things, especially as we get into the latter part of chapter 2. But that man kind of saved by the grace of God. It's still by works in a way, because, uh, but it's only that Christ now has completed and fulfilled the works on our behalf. And the covenant that we exist in now with God, this relationship that we have with God, is solely by his grace. The finished and completed and victorious work of Christ. And so mankind has the demand set before them, work perfectly, personally, perpetually for all time. If you can, you can attain salvation by your works. The problem is that sin and the fall makes that impossible. So what is man to do? God lovingly and graciously introduces the covenant of grace and says, I will provide what it is that I demand on your behalf. And we see that in the person of Christ. And so that's why it's by grace that any of us have been saved by faith. And so we're engrafted into a relationship with him through the covenant of grace. And we'll see why these things are important to keep in mind, especially as we work through chapter 2. Paul has already emphasized the covenant of grace in the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he's emphasized the covenant of grace and what the gospel is, and that mankind is saved by the grace of God. But we've also seen in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, this covenant of works still present in creation. Creation, we've seen in Romans chapter 1, it gives a knowledge of God, but it gives an incomplete revelation of God. We've seen that the, the creation is Um, and the law being present that the creation continues to proclaim condemns mankind, although we're still able to delineate right from wrong from creation, to be able to give honor and thanks to God for creation, but this knowledge of God is not one that can save. Through creation, we clearly can perceive things about God. Enough perception to where we should give him honor and thanks, is what Romans 1 tells us. But we don't because our hearts are hardened, and, but we still maintain this idea created in the image of God. We still, create, we still maintain this idea of being able to tell right from wrong. We have this, this moral compass hardwired into us still, even after the fall, but it's condemning us and it cannot save, and that's where the gospel becomes good news the gospel comes in and it gives us a fuller revelation of who God is. And once you come into relationship with God through Christ, you continue to know more of him, more about him. And then that because of that, you grow to love him more and desire him more and want to worship and serve him more. And then we get into Romans chapter 2. and We want to talk about the chaos in the chorus. What we've seen in Romans chapter 1 is that creation is a choir that is singing the chorus of God's majestic immortality. We've seen this, we see it in uh, in Psalm 19, we've seen it in Romans chapter 1. That creation, even after the fall, is still a choir that is singing the chorus of God's majestic immortality. But while this chorus sings out, mankind is living in chaos, raging against what creation reveals about God outside of them, and raging against what the moral law reveals inside of mankind. And the problem is that we're too depraved to notice, and indeed, the fall has made it so that we cannot, apart from the work of God to open up our eyes, we will continue to live in chaos among The chorus, that creation, continues to sing for him and for his glory. And so with that being said, we want to read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 today and see then how Paul brings this, what it is that he's been talking about in chapter 1, a little bit closer to home, maybe for for us to consider today as well. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We've seen in chapter 1 how Paul has written this letter to the believers in Rome. And he spent a great deal in chapter 1 talking about what it is that the world out there does. Them. The unbeliever. And I can imagine that someone standing among the congregation in the church in Rome and reading this letter, and those within the church in Rome saying, yeah, those people, those worldly unbelievers out there, they are so sick and twisted. Look at the things that they do. Listen to the description of the way that God sees them. Murderers. They practice strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're slanderers, gossips, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The world out there is so messed up, but God would not allow them nor allow us to just point the finger at them in such a way, but to also consider, have these things invaded and permeated the church as well? Notice the connection between 132 and 21 though they, the unbeliever out there in the world, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. I can imagine this letter being read to the believers in Rome, the mindset of being, yes, look at the world and how twisted it is. But then he says, but what about you, O oh man, for you who are here listening to this letter being read, what about you who point the finger and judge and condemn others for doing those things, and yet you do them too? What do you think is going to befall you? See, he's not talking about the believer. See, the reason why this passage stings is because in some ways we all struggle with hypocrisy. This is what the issue is. The reason why a text like this hurts and it gets close to home and we wiggle in our chair is because we all are hypocrites to a degree. We all say, condemn things in the world. And then if we take a moment to examine ourselves, you go, but man, I'm guilty of doing the same thing at times. What he's talking about, not necessarily is the believer, although it's good for us to examine those things that were hypocritical as well, but he's also but primarily talking about those who think just because that they're in the church and they point the finger at others and judge others for doing those things, and yet do them themselves the blindness that they have in their hypocrisy. It's clear that he's not talking about the believer. I mean, we consider the chaos first in verses 1 and 3, and five. He says, You have no excuse. For whatever reason it is, they, they don't have excuse, whether it's um, from creation itself, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20 says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The world is without excuse because they see these things about God through creation. Therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse. Oh man, perhaps, well, perhaps the, um, the standard that's facing them squarely in the eyes is the standard that creation exclaims to everybody. Perhaps maybe they had even more Information because they were within the church and they had some of the the writings perhaps from some of the other apostles, whatever it is that they had, Paul is making a clear indictment to them that they are without excuse for for practicing the very same things that they judge and condemn other people for doing. And he says, and he and he refers to all those who are listening broadly by using this term, "O oh man." Speaking generally to everybody who's listening, you see this composite picture of of the chaos in verses 1 and 3 and 5. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for passing judgment on another. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5 But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The man is a man who is guilty of hypocrisy under God's judgment and is storing up wrath for themselves. Twelve times in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 1, he is addressed the church of saying you, 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 or your. About 21 times in verses 18 through 32, in talking about the world, he has said they, them, there, And so he's made a clear distinction in chapter one of the church and the world. But here in chapter two he says, what about you, O oh man? Addressing everybody who's listening. We know that within the church, there are goats that are with the sheep, and that there are tares that are sown along with the wheat. And so this is, a, this is a call for a personal examination to the hypocrite. He says that you're condemning yourself. In passing judgment on another, you're making a moral evaluation they're, they're, where mankind still even in our fallen nature is still able to make moral evaluations of things and this is why they're passing judgment. They're saying what those people are doing are wrong. The problem is is that i passing judgment and making this moral evaluation on others. They never once stop for a moment to think and consider themselves. And they do the very same things that they condemn in others. I was reminded of you all probably know where I'm going to go with this. But I was reminded of the story of Nathan's rebuke to David. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 and 7. And Nathan comes to David to reveal to him his sin of what it is that he has done in stealing Uriah's wife Bathsheba for himself, having adultery with her. And he gives them a story of a, a rich man who had many herds and flocks and of a man who had just one land that he loved so much. And the rich man took the one man's little sheep, prepared, took it, slaughtered it, prepared it for his guests that had come to him. And Nathan asks David what, it, what should happen to this rich man that had all this wealth and stole this one sheep that this man had. In 2 Samuel 12:5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, "As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, "You are the man." Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And he goes on to talk about all these blessings of what it is that God had done for him. And David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. That should be the response of those who are in Rome, who are hearing Paul's indictment that in hearing these things mentioned, as Paul's going through that list of chapter one, those listening should be thinking to themselves, who are hypocrites, guilty of doing these things. This is piercing to the heart, and their response should be like David, outraged at the sin. And then when when it's exposed that they are the guilty one, they should respond like David responded and say, Lord, I've sinned and he's trying to get them to see that in the way that he's describing them and what it is that they're doing. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus would say in Luke chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 in warning his own disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy and he reminds them very quickly after that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. That there is coming a day in which everything will be made right, and all that is as God sees it will be made known. The hypocrite, for the time being, can continue to cover up their own sin, continue to live in it continue to outwardly condemn others who do it, but there will come a day of judgment and revelation in which all things will be made known for what they truly are. All motives and reasons and affections will be revealed. And so Paul mentions that in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you are really pulling one over on the Lord? Do you think, yet you may be fooling everybody else in the room, right? We're really good at this. We show up at church. We got our nice clothes on. We got our smiles on our faces. We, at times we can look like plastic people. And there's, so, there's like a tempest of sin and disobedience raging within the heart. And Paul asks them, do you think that you're hiding that from God? Do you think that he doesn't already know what it is that you want? What are you thinking about right now as you sit in that chair? where, Where are your affections, your desires, your hopes, and your dreams? Scripture tells us to do all things right, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10 31. Is that really the way that we live? You think, do we think that we can escape the judgment of God? And so I ask myself the question, why would someone who is a hypocrite to this like this think that they're actually going to escape God's judgment? And I think it's probably the same reason why many of hypocrites today think that they're going to escape God's judgment. They have some knowledge, some sort of knowledge of what the Bible says, some idea of who Jesus is. Perhaps they had some, like, spiritual experience at one point in their life, right? I mean, there's this Asbury revival going on. Like, right now, it's huge. It's, I mean, even Fox News is talking about it. Like, and we still, you know, I, I hope, I, I do hope, I do pray that this is genuine revival, but time will tell. But people have religious experiences all the time. Doesn't, mean, doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved. You pray a prayer, you walk the aisle. What gives someone a, what is it that can give someone such so a false sense of assurance of being saved, that they can go to church, hear sermons, hear of what it is that God loves and desires and approves of, what he hates and what what he disapproves of and what will incur judgment, and, and doing those things that will bring judgment and stand there week after week and sit in their chair. Some sort of false sense of assurance. I mean, the only thing that saves us from the wrath of God is faith in Christ and believing that he, I mean when he, when he languished away and hung upon that cross he was receiving divine wrath and judgment for all of those who would come to him by faith. And so the judgment of God is going to be, it has to be, because God is just, it has to be poured out. The only question is, is who's going to be the recipient? Christ in your stead or you? These people, the, the hypocrites here, think that they're escaping God's judgment. And then this is the worst part, the way that it describes them in verse 5. But because of your hard and impetent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. They're just storing up the wrath of God. Their hearts are hard, they're, they're obstinate and stubborn, impenitent, and meaning they're, they're unrepentant, and they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is going to be revealed, that day of exposure and wrath and judgment. That's the chaos that Paul is addressing. But let's look at the chorus. Verse 2, we see in verse 2 and 4, Paul talking about the chorus that still is being maintained. We've seen that in chapter 1. He carries that forward into chapter 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Again, we know these things either by general revelation or through special revelation of God's Word, that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. And we see In this passage, God's justice highlighted, that God's justice is right, and that it includes judgment, and it's an expression of his moral evaluation on things. The hypocrite can make a moral evaluation and say, that is wrong, but still do it themselves, but God declares something that is wrong and it's always right because he never and is incapable of doing wrong. That's why his, just, his judgment is always just and right. He always stands in the position of being right. When, I mean, I probably think I'm like that more often than I really am. I'm, I think I'm always right. But God actually is always right in all that he says and thinks and does forever and always will be. It's incredible. His, and his judgment is an expression of his moral evaluation. And this is one of the things that I see, though, too. You see this in verse 2 and 3. His judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things? And so two verses in 2 and 3, he emphasizes the practice of what it is that he's talked about in chapter 1. So he's condemning those practices. But think about it on the flip side. He's also implying that through the regenerative work of faith in God by the power of the Holy Spirit working in someone's lives, life, that they actually can come to a place where we are no longer practicing these things. I mean, isn't that wonderfully good news? That, that, that those who genuinely know Christ actually grow in holiness. Like sanctification is really doing something in your life. You used to be a certain way. You used to practice certain things, and oh, how did we do those things and love those things and enjoy those things? But when my but when I came to know Christ, my desire, my love um, for some of those things completely died. Now I'm still tethered to some of them, and I struggle with them. But it's wonderfully good news that I'm growing and changing, and I am no longer practicing and doing the same things that I used to do before. I mean, that's good news. If you're in Christ, I know it may seem like you're in neutral. Man, for some of us, it may seem like we're in reverse. But the Spirit of God working in your life is propelling you forward to be like Christ and preparing you to spend an eternity with Him. Right? Like Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. These are wonderful promises that we have. We like, don't have to practice the things that we're doing. We're, we're, we struggle. We'll get into this all in Romans more. But the point being here is that real change and growth is absolutely possible and even promised to those who are in Christ. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 4, and this is really like the crown jewel of the passage. Look at how it, it, it puts the character of God on display for us. He's talking to the hypocrite. Do you presume, but presume on what? To presume, to despise or to disregard. What are they despising and disregarding? The riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing they have no idea they're blind to the fact that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance like that's the point the repentance is the point the hypocrite needs to come to a place of repentance where they where they making the moral evaluation of what others in the world are doing as being wrong, sinful, despicable in the eyes of God, and and they see that they're doing the very same things, and they're pierced, they're, they're, they're crushed, their heart is torn by who they are and what they're doing. That's why Paul wants to come and preach the gospel, right? Chapter 1, verse 15, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why is he eager to preach the gospel? Because of what the gospel does. The gospel is the only thing that reveals the righteousness of God. And oh, when the righteousness of God is revealed, man, sinful man is undone. You're laid, your, your heart is laid asunder. It's ripped in two. You're crushed. And you see very quickly that your only hope of salvation is from the righteous one. listen to the way, and look at the way that God's character is spoken of. Presume on the riches. I lo- you know, he just, he just could have said, you presume on, the, on his kindness and forbearance and patience, but no. God includes this, the, the phrase, the riches, so that we might know the inexhaustible depth and the vastness and, and the, the potency of these things about God. He's not just like a little kind and a little forbearing and a little patient, but like God is rich. Don't you wish like all of the people in your life were rich in these ways? I mean, I wish I was rich in these ways. I wish I was rich in, in patience and in forbearance and kindness. I, I wish that my kids were this way. I wish, every, I wish we were all like this. But it magnifies the character of God, the unfathomable depth of who he is and his kindness. His kindness is his, his goodness, his moral excellence, and his forbearance or his delay and his tolerance and his patience. If it, we, we, we say that some people are short-tempered, To be patient is to be long-tempered. It's to deal with and bear with sin for a long period of time. When you think about, he's saying that God is rich in excellence, in tolerance, and being able to bear with sin for a long time. It's part of his being. That's what the second kindness, not knowing that God's kindness is what meant to lead you to repentance. You think of all the ways that God is kind to us, that He He allows sin to go on, that He bears with sin, that He's kind, He's tolerant, He allows sin to go on, He bears with it for a period of time so that mankind might repent. What should have happened is that every time a sin is committed, the one who commits it is taken out immediately. That's justice in God's economy. Every day that the unbeliever is still breathing is is a day day where God is expressing expressing the depth of the riches and his kindness and tolerance and patience upon them. And 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 that was an expression of himself towards you and I, as we were unbelievers and unrepentant as well. Should never forget. And 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 he continues to be that way towards us. Think of all the ways that God is kind to us. His kindness is displayed in his creation. We see this in. One of Paul's sermons in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, beginning in verse 16, as Paul is preaching, he says, in past generations, he, being God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. And one of the ways that God has revealed how kind he is is just by the way that he treats his creation in general. Matthew 5.45 reminds us that the rain falls evenly on the wicked and the good. God is just kind to all of his creation because it's who he is. Even unbelievers experience God's kindness. You think of all the other ways, some of the other ways, the comforts and conveniences that God gives to us. We saw In um, chapter 17, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 17 of Acts, just now, that God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And you think of all the ways that, just as an expression of God's kindness, he satisfies our hearts with food and gladness. DoorDash is a wonderful thing, it's an expression of God's kindness upon us. All the comforts and all the conveniences that we have, those are expressions of God's kindness if you see them that way. Now, the warning for us is to not allow those things to take his place because, oh, how easily comforts and conveniences replace God in our lives. But if we see those things as being good gifts of his kindness towards us, then we can rightly thank him for all of these things and be thankful in all circumstances. Jeremiah Burroughs said, external things cannot alter a heart full of grace. When your affections are set upon him and your heart is full of love for him and the grace that he's given to you, all the external conveniences and comforts and temptations cannot alter that. For he has taken up residence within us. You think of another way that he's been kind to us in giving us the church, where we have the opportunity to worship, to fellowship, to hear God's word preached, to hear it sung, to take communion together. You think of all the ways that God has has been um, kindly expressing his disposition towards the world by the presence, preserving the presence of the church. But the world sees the church as a problem. As a disease, as a virus that needs to be eliminated. Little do they know that the church is an expression of God's kindness in preserving um, a, a place where his character and goodness and nature are proclaimed. And then lastly, we see his kindness most clearly displayed to us in Christ. I was listening to the hymn Smitten, stricken, and afflicted. Last night and this morning, written by Thomas Kelly in 1804, and part of one of the verses says Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge for the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name in which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. You think about the clearest display of God's kindness is in Christ. God himself, the eternal son of God, incorruptible in his nature, coming and putting on corruptible flesh, dwelling among us, and then experiencing what we had in store for him. What a display of God's kindness. So this is why Paul wants to come and preach the gospel to Rome, that the hypocrites might be pierced by the truth, that the gospel for the believer, or for the unbeliever, that the hypocrites might hear and, and, and have exposed to them the righteous judgment of God that's being poured out on sinners and the call and the urge, the beckoning to come to Christ for forgiveness. He's also eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome because the gospel is good not only to save the sinner, but to sanctify the saint as well. The gospel is good news and expression of God's kindness not only because it saves those who don't know him, but it sanctifies those of us who do. The God, that's why the gospel is never, it's never old If you have been convicted of sin, of, of any sin or hip, hypocrisy, the gospel calls you to come to him today. To not, to, turn, to not turn or to hide or to run, but to come to him and confess and to trust his goodness and his loving kindness. That forgiveness is what is in store for those who come to him by faith and confess their sins. It's obviously also meant to, a message like this is also meant to keep the church holy and humble. Never assume that God takes sin lightly just because you aren't paying for it today. Messages like this are incredibly, for me, sanctifying in the sense where asking myself, Lord, in in, in what ways am I hypocritical? and do I not properly represent you to others? It's to produce holiness and humility. It's also a call for us to be like him. Jesus would say in Luke 6, 35 and 36, love your enemies and do good and lend most of us are familiar with that part expecting nothing in return and your reward will be, reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high why for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful there's application for us in that we are called to display the same kindness that we receive from him to others. We are recipients of the riches of this incredible kindness, tolerance. Think about how intolerant and impatient we are. We live in a world of, of, of Netflix and drive throughs and everything right now. And when we don't get it right now, what I want right now, we, be, we grow incredibly impatient and intolerant. I, I get so irritated when I've got to wait for a video to buffer for like 10 seconds. You think about how applicable this is for us. Are we kind, patient, and tolerant? For God is that way with the unbeliever and the evil and the wicked. So be merciful. Even as your Father is merciful. And then, lastly, just consider the hope that's given in our text. God is giving opportunities for repentance. He's kind and forbearing and tolerant, patient, so that? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I know that a lot of us here know people who don't know the love of Christ. They don't know the kindness. And maybe we consider some of them too far gone. But every day that they are still here is a day and an opportunity for repentance that God grants them. And we don't know how many of these days we have So we make the most of every opportunity. Now we kind of start to get, man, why was this guy Paul so committed and determined to this gospel thing and planting churches? And we know why. We see why. The question is, like, do we derive hope from that? And are we on board with it too? As we prepare to take communion together, this is an opportunity for our worship to continue. We've worshiped the Lord in song, we've worshiped him, and I pray through the preaching of his word as we extend our worship time together as we partake of communion. the communion is not just a time of worship, it's also a time of confession, a time of examination, and a time of assurance of being pardoned by him if we are in Christ. And having the gospel be good news to us, that we are, we are saved by, his, by the blood of Christ, still recipients of his kindness, though we go astray. This is an opportunity to confess and to return as we look at these elements. So this is the time for the believer. If you are visiting North Hills today and you are a believer in Christ and you know him by faith and by faith alone, then the invitation to the table is yours. But if you're not a believer, to consider how you stand before him and how his, how his patience and his kindness continues to go every day and as an opportunity for repentance. So the elements are on the tables behind you, and you can get those and return back to your seat, and we'll have a time of prayer, meditation, and then we will partake of communion together shortly.